This is Learn From Others, where we interview a cross-section of successful individuals so you can learn from their experiences, achievements, and even their mistakes. We ask four questions that will educate and inspire. Greg Stanley will be your guide as we join our guests on a journey from adolescent daydreaming to success in today's world. Join us on this adventure as we learn from others together. Welcome to Learn From Others, where we help others succeed by sharing success. I'm very excited to introduce our special guest, Vincent Aiello. Vincent, thank you for taking us on your career journey. But before we find out what you're doing today, let's start at the very beginning. And please tell us, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, my first recollection of wanting to be something when I grew up was when I was eight years old and my parents took me to my first air show. And I was smitten, to say the least, at the noise and power and amazement of the aircraft as well as the swagger of the pilots. So I decided then at that young age that I wanted to be a fighter pilot and of course had to finish school and high school, but eventually made my way into a military commissioning program and then became a Navy pilot, which I was for 18, actually for 25 years and retired from that and now am an airline pilot. Wow. That's a lot. That's really awesome. And that really goes to the air shows that are performed around the country you know, you get those little kids when they're young and blow their minds. Oh, indeed. Yes. I encourage people to take a child to an air show. You could change their lives. Now, was there a particular airplane that caught your eye or was it just in general? Well, just in general, I would say. I went. My first air show was Point Magoo, which is a Navy base just north of Los Angeles on the coast. And so I remember the Blue Angels were flying the A-4 Skyhawk at the time. And I remember seeing the F-4 Phantom. But the one that really blew my mind was a year or two later when we went back, the SR-71 mm-hmm. Blackbird, which was super secretive. We barely had any sketches of it then before it really went public. It started to show up at air shows and did a flyby and we were late to the show we were walking in but we started running in because we saw that one flying (laughs) but all of them equally grasped my attention i would say now isn't the blackbird the one that went to like super high heights for lack of a better way to say it and super high speeds wasn't a record breaker on a lot of different fronts I believe it is a record holder for height and speed, yes. Altitude. That is amazing considering that was probably what decommissioned like 30 years ago. Oh, <laughs> uh, I think they finally hung it up in the early 90s, but it is 60s technology, so impressive for sure. Well, tell us, what was your first job, one that you had responsibilities and wanted to perform well? Well, my first job was as a busboy at a Marie Callender's restaurant. Yeah, that's awesome. I've never been to one of those, but I know their pies are great. Oh, yes, indeed. And at the end of the night, if they hadn't sold some of them, that we could take them home with us. So my friends all loved my job as much as I did. <laughs> now, now knowing that you liked, you wanted to become a fighter pilot, did you have a particular favorite subject or hobby in school? Not really. What I knew was that to become a pilot, you had to first become an officer. And to become an officer, you had to have a four-year bachelor's degree preferably in something technical, although not required. And so as I was finishing high school, I applied to the Naval Academy and it was declined. So I looked at the Reserve Officer Training Corps, or ROTC, and applied to a number of different colleges. And I can remember a discussion with my high school counselor who asked, what do you want to study? And I said, well, what do you mean? Well, you have to pick a major. Well, I don't know. And so the counselor very patiently worked me through a process where I came to land on math and, in fact, ended up with a math degree. And the reason the counselor ended up there with me was that he asked me, 
well, when you go home, what homework do you do first? Because I couldn't really tell him what my favorite subject was because, you know, I don't know. Most high school kids just, eh, you know, do whatever comes easy. And he ended up asking me why the math came easy to me. And I said, I like that there's one answer, not some nebulous answer like what was Shakespeare thinking when he wrote this sonnet. <laughs> so right. lacking anything else and being a little bit exasperated, I believe, the counselor signed me up for math in all my applications and I stuck with it because, again, it seemed logical to me, and my mind seems to have a bent for math. So I ended up with a math degree, and that was what helped prepare me for aviation. But I tell people who ask me now, you don't have to have a technical degree. It's preferred by the military, but you don't have to have one. But I did use my math through my flying career, not in deep formulaic equations, but just the ability to do quick mental calculations. Well, that's pretty interesting that – they he had that insight you know i think that's almost any guidance school counselor that should be their first question well what do right. you do first you know there's a reason you do it first easier it comes easier to you or you enjoy it so that was very insightful on their part and it looked like For it sure. worked out pretty well well cool now we understand where you came from and what you wanted to be when you grew up and actually what you did when you grew up but what do you do today and if you would just kind of walk us through how you got there sure well, today I am an airline pilot for a major domestic airline here in the United States. I'm also a podcast host like yourself, and I am a property manager for several rental homes that I own with my wife. And we'll concentrate on the airline pilot one for now, Greg. Sure. That that became available to me once I retired from the Navy in early 2017. I left with over 3,000 flight hours, and the airline's appreciate people who have military experience, although they also hire pilots who work their way up through regional airlines and other flying. But with that experience, they knew I had, in effect, been there, done that. And so I applied to a number of different airlines. And the first one that came calling, I interviewed with and started indoctrination with them as another one called. But by then, I already felt that the first one was adequate. And I've enjoyed working there. And so it comes down to taking the military experience I have, translating that into a qualification called Airline Transport Pilot or ATP. And once you have that, you fill out the application, which can be a bit arduous, but they want to make sure that you have all the necessary background and no skeletons in the closet. And then they interview you. And if you pass all that, then they invite you to come work for them. And that's what I'm doing now. That's a, that's great. That's really a great way to walk through it because there will be a lot of folks that are coming from the military path as pilots. And what do I do to make that next step? So that's great. Mm -hmm. Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to touch a little bit on your time as a fighter pilot. Are there a couple big experiences or cool experiences or challenges you faced as a pilot that you would like to share? And I've always heard that that's the hardest job is you know, landing on an aircraft carrier is one of the hardest things there is to do out there. Oh, I would agree with that, especially at night. I would say for me, I'm one of those guys, Greg, you're probably the other guy. I'm one of those guys that has to work really hard to be average or maybe slightly above at everything. <laughs> you you're picked up on the, that, huh? <laughs> no, no, no. You're probably the guy I was getting to in a moment that always makes it look easy. And, and by what I'm trying to get to here is I think all of us having only our own experience probably always see other people and not seeing the full picture, maybe think they make it look easy. Mm -hmm. And so you're doing a great job with this podcast. So there could be other podcasters out there that struggle and they think you and I make it look easy. Well, we both know that it's a lot of work. It is. For, for me, I made my way through flight school 
not with flying colors, but I didn't get washed out either. There was mm-hmm. times when I had to redo certain flights because it just wasn't coming natural or easy to me. And so I had to work really, really hard. But the upside to that is I became the kind of person who is willing and able to work really, really hard at something. And so later when I was done with just learning how to fly an airplane at all, and now take that airplane that you know how to fly and land it on a very small floating runway, then that that can be difficult. And then turn around and do it with the lights turned off. And that not only is difficult, but downright terrifying, frankly. And so I am one of those people that just had to really try extra hard at most things. But it has its upsides because success can come for some people just because they are naturally talented. But for the rest of us, through hard work and dedication and devotion. And that's really what it took. I met my wife early in flight school, and we did not marry until I was done with flight school some four years later. And she still kids me about it, but I tell her, I said, look, I at the time, I was married to flight school. This was my priority. And once I was done, then we moved on to the next step, which was marriage. But it really does take ruling everything, almost almost everything else out of your life and just committing yourself to something 100% when it comes to military aviation. It seemed to for me. Okay, and I need to ask a couple questions from the outside looking in because I do find this fascinating. Your first time that you're approaching that aircraft carrier, what was that like? Like you're in the air, this is your first landing. Do you practice like with a big target on land first? So you get the dimensions right? Okay, with the the cables that grab you and slow you down and everything? I know I'm getting the terminology totally wrong, but... From a layman's perspective, the wires that you're <laughs> the hook on the back of the plane catches. Um, right. You know, is that how it works? So early in your flight training, once you have the basics down, they ask that every time you come in to do a landing, that you do the same procedures you will someday do when you land at the aircraft carrier, because they want that repetition to build to build muscle memory into mm. you. And so when you come in into what we call the overhead break, which is where you fly over the runway at 800 feet at about 300 miles per hour or so. They want you to roll to the left and pull and retard your throttles and arrive facing now the opposite direction at a certain distance of beam. And then you configure your aircraft and then you make the final 180 degree turn and you you arrive in a position to land on the runway for starters in a position that if you do that over and over and over, the very first time you do it at the ship, you will have seen it before, even though it's different, because instead of trees next to the runway, it's water. And even though the runway is long at the field, it's short there, but the lights in the area will look the same. Mm -hmm. So there will be, Greg, cables at the field, but those are only used for emergencies if you have a problem with your aircraft. There's actually no need to pull you to a jarring stop every time. What they want you to do is they want you to arrive at the position about 15 to 17 seconds before landing where you are on the right glide slope with your aircraft configured correctly and your left to right positioning is correct. And then you fly all the way down the glide slope to touch down at a precise point where at that point, if your hook was down and if a cable was there, it would pull you to a halt. But at that point, it's pretty much over because there's nothing more the pilot does other than add full throttle as you are being pulled to a stop because if it misses, you want to go around again. So it's really 
the procedure leading up to the cable grabbing you that we practice over and over. When you land on an aircraft carrier, it's not always the cable that slows you down. Is that correct? So on an aircraft carrier, it is the cable. Okay. On the field, it is not. So let's say I come in from a practice flight and I will do, let's say, three or four touch and go landings. Well, each one of those will be just like the landing approach I might perform at the carrier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when I touch down, I go to full throttle and because it doesn't pull me to a stop because there's no cable and I don't have my hook down, well, then I just bounce back up into the air and I come around and do it again. And then for my very last landing, I retard the throttles to idle and then I just roll out on that long runway, sometimes eight up to 10,000 feet long. Now, the first time you go to the aircraft carrier after many, many practice landings, you might do a touch and go with your hook up just to kind of shake the nerves out Mm -hmm. a little bit. But then the first time you put your hook down, the moment you touch down, it feels like it's that instant. Sometimes it's just a split second later. But generally, your hook will grab the cable and you'll go to full power, but you'll be thrown forward in the straps and it will pull you to a stop even with your aircraft at full power. And in afterburning aircraft, you can be in full afterburner and it will still pull you to a stop. That is amazing. How many G's is that? You know, we don't really think of it as G's too much because those are a different type of G. Now, when you're Mm. pulling G's in the airplane, it's pulling on an axis that goes, let's say, starts at your head and ends at your rear end because you're sitting. And that is a type of G that's difficult because the blood will leave your brain, essentially. Mm -hmm. When you're landing, it's a different axis because now the G's you're pulling are more from the back of your head to the front of your head. And so you don't really notice it as much. But I don't know. It's probably a couple Gs. Again, it's not something we really measure. Did you ever come in a little too hot and have to take back off again? Oh, yes. Several times. After 705 landings, I think another 30 of those were what we call bolters. And that is when you miss all the wires and you have to go around again. Some were my fault. Some were the conditions, (laughs) particularly when the ship is bouncing up and down a lot. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I can't even imagine doing that. Well, Can we touch on Top Gun for a second? Sure. Okay. What was your involvement during the course of your career? I was selected to attend and remain at Top Gun as an instructor midway through my career. So I spent almost three years there as both a student initially and then as an instructor where I achieved the different qualifications to instruct both on the ground and in flight. Okay. And how long is that the actual Top Gun program if someone's selected to go through it? We talk about that on my podcast, actually. It's called the Fighter Pilot Podcast. It's episode seven. I recorded it with the Top Gun commanding officer at the time. He has since moved on, but a good friend of mine. And it changes because the syllabus sometimes changes depending on what is required in Mm. the strike fighter community in the Navy and Marine Corps at the time. I think right now it's between 11 and 12 weeks. And when you show up and go through that, that is all you're doing as a student for those 12 weeks. Is there really a trophy at the end? No, there's not. (laughs) So (laughs) are you in support of the new Top Gun movie? Or I don't know, was Top Gun the movie good for business or bad for business? Top Gun as a source of entertainment was fantastic for the Navy. It drove much needed recruiting and student pilots and just attention for them, which was pretty good because they didn't pay a lot to do it. I think the film company, if I remember correctly, paid for the film, or excuse me, for the fuel, and 
all the flights otherwise could arguably be construed as training flights. You're always learning something every time you go flying. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, they invited the filming crew out to the USS Enterprise, I believe it was, during carrier qualifications that they were doing anyway. So it was a boon for the military in general, the Navy specifically. The second one, I'm not so sure. I have some friends who are involved with the filming, and I really hope they get it right because, you know, Greg, with sequels, to my thinking, the best you can do is break even. If you screw right. it up, then you're always known as the guys who tried to repeat the glory of the first one, and sometimes it doesn't work. So I have high hopes, but we'll see. Yeah, and if you go back to, I believe it's my sixth podcast, I interviewed an F-16 pilot with the Air Force, and one comment he made was, how come we didn't get that gig? <laughs> how, did, how did that go to the to the Navy? He was kind of hoping to go to the Air Force for that extra publicity. So it's great that it worked out so well on the first well, go-around. Hey, they got Iron Eagle. That was a well, compelling yeah. movie. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> no, I've heard that F-16 pilots disown Iron Eagle, apparently, and it is pretty far-fetched, a lot of it. But again, it's entertainment. Is there anything that in the original Top Gun movie that just bothers you, that's just all Hollywood and, and just really get you upset yes the fact that they portray fighter pilots as devil may care rule breaking do what i want people that is far from the truth in fact i spend much of my podcast trying to beat back that stereotype fighter pilots at least all the ones i've ever known are calculating careful cautious thoughtful they follow the rules and they try to be the best they can at their chosen craft and make everyone around them better at the same time. Now, to be fair, because what we do requires a certain level of proficiency and confidence because nobody wants to fly, fly with a unconfident or questionable pilot, mm -hmm. there are times when that level of confidence could be, could be misconstrued as arrogance or cockiness. And some tread that line a little more closely than the rest of us, right. I like to think. Right. But for the most part, I think Hollywood and social media really miss the mark when it comes to stereotyping fighter pilots. And it's something I try to really change or rectify on my show, frankly. Yes. And I'd, I'd have to say you're doing a great job of doing that. So, oh, and I appreciate well, you, you being on this podcast. You're welcome. Well, before we move on to our next question, let's take a moment to hear from our sponsors. Do you enjoy your job and find it fulfilling? Or do you spend more time wondering what if instead of what's next? If so, contact Career Spa. Career Spa has extensive programs and curriculum and understands the challenges faced by individuals in transition. They can teach these success practices to be mastered for an effective job search. Answer that what if question by contacting Career Spa and asking their experts, what's next? Contact Career Spa at careerspa.net. Talent acquisition is key to building a successful organization. Talent Connections is a professional services firm that specializes in recruiting, including executive search, contract recruiting, talent acquisition consulting, and recruitment process outsourcing. Whether you are an individual or a Fortune 100 company, Talent Connections can connect you with success. Contact them at talentconnections.net. Welcome back. As a reminder, you can check out all previous episodes at learnfromothers.org. If you're an an educator or a student, you can search for podcasts by career cluster and additional resources are under the resource tab. So Vincent, we just learned what you wanted to be when you grew up and what you're actually doing today. So if you could do it all over again, what would you do differently? Well, I would not do anything differently regarding my path 
or taking advantage of opportunities that I had. What I would change is very trivial. I would try not to sweat the little stuff. I would try not to get upset about a bad landing grade. We talked about landings earlier, and what I didn't have a chance to mention is that every grade, every landing is graded by fellow pilots, and everyone always wants to do well and get what the equivalent of an A is for landing grades. And, you know, if you get a B or a C equivalent, you get a little fired up about that because you want to do well. Well, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter anymore. I wish I had not worried about that too much. <laughs> and... You know, there's always relationships or things that were said that shouldn't have been said or things that were done or not done that should have been not done or done. And those are just little things that probably I would wish I had done differently if I was anything other than what I ended up doing, because that was just a reflection of who I am as a person, not the career path that I had. But I'm glad that it worked out the way it did for me. It does not always work out for everyone that they are accepted into an aviation program. And then in my case, Jets, and then specifically the F-18. And that I had the opportunities that I did with Top Gun and a lot of other tours. And so I would just try to do it again, but again, maybe not sweat the little stuff so much. Now, since you brought it up, it doesn't have to be you, but do you have an interesting story about a bad landing grade that you could share? Certainly can, actually. This is one I've shared before in various circles. For whatever reason, one time when I landed, you remember earlier we said that when you land, you automatically go to full throttle. And mm-hmm. sometimes you inadvertently go into full afterburner, which frankly doesn't matter. And I landed one particular night, and I don't know what I was thinking. It was just this momentary lapse. And I said, I'm not going to put my throttles too far forward because I don't want to go into full afterburner. And what happened is, and instead, I didn't move them far enough. And that is a huge no-no, for lack of Mm. more technical terminology, because (laughs) if the wire either breaks or I don't catch the wire or something happens and I need to go flying again, the aircraft will not have the thrust it needs unless I'm in full power. And so I could have, for no real good reason, inadvertently trickled off the end of the carrier and had to eject or even killed myself. And either way, the aircraft would have been destroyed. And again, it was just for no good reason other than I felt like I'd been going into afterburner on recent landings, and I didn't want to do that, but it didn't matter if I went into afterburner. So I was relatively new and just really had a slip of judgment. More of a mental slip than anything else. Yep. And I received a very stern speaking to by those landing signal officers, as well as the air boss who owns the entire flight deck. He is a much more senior aviator, not flying currently, but his role is to make sure the flight deck is safe. And if you cross lines, you're not supposed to cross both figuratively and literally lines on the flight deck, in my case, figuratively, then you hear from him. And in my case, I went up there and got a good speaking to about that and never did it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you learned your lesson. So that's Indeed. good. Yes. Well, now you've done a really great job of outlining the typical career path for someone who liked to be a fighter pilot and even an airline pilot. But if someone wanted to do what you do, is there anything else you would like to give them as words of wisdom? Well, it depends on what part of it. If they want to be a military pilot, then I would suggest that they speak to a, a officer recruiter, not just any old recruiter, because recruiters have quotas to meet. I'm not calling them unscrupulous, but one might try to convince you that you could become an enlisted person first and then change to the officer corps, which is true. 
and a lot of people do that to great success. But if someone wanted to specifically be a military pilot, Greg, I would say speak with an officer recruiter and figure out the best path to get you to a commissioning as an officer. For some people, that is a service academy, such as the Air Force or Naval Academy. For some of us, it's ROTC. And for some people, it's just finishing college on your own and then entering into officer candidate school, I believe the Navy calls it, or officer training school for the Air Force. Either way, you have to become an officer, and then you just have to work your tail end off through flight school because it's all about performance and grades, which is an evaluation of how well you are prepared. And then at that point, you roll with the punches because even on your best day, if you were the number one student finishing flight school that particular week and you want to fly jets, it might be that all they have is helicopters or mm. cargo planes. And there's an element of that that you have to surrender to either fate or divine intervention, whichever you prefer. And you just have to surrender that to something else because you can't do anything more than your best. So it works out for a lot of people. doesn't work out for everyone. But you have to figure out the path, work hard to get there, and then be prepared for things to not work out, even though you did all you could on your side. Well, are there any current projects you're working on that you would like to share? And I know there is. Indeed. <laughs> I am into my coming up on second year of my own podcast, the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And we are, I would say, exploring the dance floor, looking for different ways to share the fascinating world of air combat with our listeners. So if people want to check us out, we're on all the typical social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and we have a Patreon page as well with exclusive content available. And we also have a website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. And as I intimated earlier, Greg, we explore the world of air combat. We also break down stereotypes of fighter pilots. And really, we just try to make it informational or informative and educational for the listener because there are a lot of people out there that just find military aviation so fascinating. And I was thrilled to be able to share it when I was active. And now I enjoy sharing it through my podcast. And it also keeps me connected with a part of my life that left such an indelible mark that I just didn't want to walk away with nothing. So I enjoy sharing the world through the podcast. And that's one thing I'm doing. And then again, just working through my airline career as well, hoping to move from someday a first officer side of the cockpit to the captain's side. And I recently moved into international flying. So I just enjoy that as well. And I enjoy sharing what I do with people. Well, as with most journeys, success largely depends on reliable transportation. And since I'm a huge car enthusiast, would you tell us what was your first car? My first car was a 1975 four-door VW Rabbit. That's not bad. That's a good little car. Classic. Uh, that was all right. I mean, it got me where I wanted to go. It was efficient, and I could put my friends in it. So, efficient, yeah, that was, yeah, that was my first. All right. Do you have a dream car? And if so, what is it? I've always loved the 1970 Chevy Chevelle. That's the year I was born. I just like that muscle car look. And I love that the, they made it one with a 454. I see them at car shows from time to time, and I always point out to my wife or kids that that's my dream car in red with the black racing stripes. But truthfully... If one fell into my lap, I don't know how often I would drive it. I actually have a 1967 Ford Mustang Fastback in my garage. Ooh, it was my, nice. yeah, it's a great car. It was my grandfather's car. He bought it new. And I don't really drive it that often, and it's dirtier than it should be. I'm embarrassed to admit. And I love it when I do drive it. But 
I'm fortunate, Greg, to live in an island-type community where I ride my beach cruiser and an electric golf cart around a lot. So the car doesn't come out too much. And I like fast cars, too. So, But for me, the classic American muscle seems to hold my heart, including the Camaros. I've always had a place in my heart for them as well. So one great perk to some jobs is a company car. So if I had all of the money in the world... I'd love to buy you a really cool company car based on your job. So I'm, I did this based on being a fighter pilot. Okay. So the car I picked for you and is a was a 2015 McLaren P1. Ooh. Basically, it's a fighter jet with four wheels. <laughs> I mean, for the most part, there it's a crazy cool car. I sent you the picture. They only made 350, 375 of them. The sticker on those was 1.6 million new. Um, so one of the fastest cars ever made, about a thousand horsepower, uh, just a wicked car. And what's really cool is the picture I sent you. It actually matches your logo for your podcast. <laughs> it does. It's got that yellow. Thank you. I'm enthralled. Yeah. And the price yeah, is so almost it... the same as a fighter jet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so expensive. The little front spoiler that's made out of carbon fiber. If you were to crack that to replace that spoiler, it costs eighty six thousand dollars. <laughs> sure, but that's nothing to people who can afford a one point six million dollar car anyway. That's true. That's true. So that's the car I'd get for you if I had all the money in the world. Well, thank you, Greg. I appreciate that. I will enjoy driving it in my mind. There we go. There we go. Well, thank <laughs> you so much for taking us on your journey. What's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you or your podcast? They can find us at fighterpilotpodcast.com or they can email us at questions, plural, at fighterpilotpodcast.com. And we also have a listener line, 877-MACH-101. And that's M-A-C-H, like Mach. Awesome. That's great. And just for trivia, there was a Mustang called the Mach 1. That's right. Very good. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you so much, Vincent, for taking us on your career journey today. You're welcome, Greg. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Learn From Others, where we help others succeed by sharing success. Where will our next adventure take us? Subscribe to find out. If you know of someone who has a cool career story or occupation, contact Greg through Instagram at Greg Stanley LFO. That's G-R-E-G-S-T-A-N-L-E-Y-L-F-O. And we will see you soon as we learn from others together.